family from Cambridge to London. And it was so interesting because while we were on the train, the voiceover came on the train that said, this is the train going from Cambridge to London. But there was a glitch in the system. So at the same time, the voice, an, another voice, the same lady's vo voice, came on announcing, this is the train from London to Cambridge. And it was one of those moments where I thought, it's so great that words aren't that powerful. Because if they were, the train would have been ripped into, and so would we have been. So I thought this is actually a really good analogy for where we are right now in the global village. Um, so I've kind of been trying to map patterns of what's going on in the world, and I'll expose you to some of the patterns that I'm seeing. The analogy that kind of extends this, this idea of being ripped into two, is one from, who knows how you pronounce his name, but anyway, George Louis Borges, who wrote an essay called The Wall and the Books, and he talks about the Chinese emperor who built the Great Wall of China, was also the person who instituted the burning of books. Borges has a particular reading of this. He suggests that the building of the wall is obviously to establish territory and safety and that kind of thing, and the burning of books is to get rid of any mention of other emperors who might be compared to him. So, get rid of history. I want to take a slightly different reading of this. I think burning books is, is about how we are moving, or have moved, actually, a long time ago into an age of post-literacy. The idea of sitting and in a very sustained, concentrated way reading a book, that's not a normal thing now, um, as I'm also discovering in my academic work and speaking to students. Uh, we used to, when I interviewed students, I used to ask the students, um, what are you reading? And a part, the, the answers were something by Stephanie Meyer or... Uh, Harry Potter never even featured. Um, the, so some sort of uh, pop thing. But that was it. Nothing really outside of that. So I think that's very interesting, just as a trend. In any case, by the way, I'm not here to judge this being right or wrong. I'm just talking about what's happening. Uh, the other thing that started to happen is people are building walls. Sometimes they want to build literal walls, so um, as in Trump's <laughs> wall. And I think people are very quick to judge, you know, Trump wants to build a wall, but very few people actually understand why this trend would even become a trend. And so that's something that I'm asking questions about. Uh, one of the things that has always intrigued me is that we don't know the world that we're in until we're, the, the old saying, a fish doesn't know that it's in water until it is exposed to air. It's very irritating for the fish to be exposed to air, but this is what actually needs to happen for the fish to realize what the water is like. So my function is, at least here, but probably elsewhere too, is to be air. And in any case, you're not fish, and breathing is actually salvation, not detriment. One of the w things to consider is the fact that we, we notice the figures, the things that stand out, but we don't notice the ground. That's a very common thing. The analogy here that I, I really like is that of Daffy Ducks, there's a, an animation called Duck Amuck, which you can check out on YouTube. Daffy Duck is standing in front of a background and he's, Daffy Duck is dressed in a particular way and he's trying to act in response to the era that is being depicted in the background. But the artist, being quite funny, and I think it's very significant that the artist does this, the artist keeps on changing the background. So Daffy Duck keeps on interrupting his own spiel 
and getting very irate with the artist. And eventually, after much, I think, anger, he resigns himself to the fact that the background has changed. And while he is talking, the artist then changes how Daffy Duck himself looks. And I think it's very interesting. The moment he accepts the background is the moment he also changes. And this is exactly what happens to us as people. The minute we completely resign ourselves to a context, the one that we're in, is the moment that we'll start to resemble what it is presenting. And I think this is what's happened to most of the world. People have been enveloped in certain media ecologies, I guess, and then through this envelopment in media ecologies, they become more and more like the media that they're exposed to. So what we need to be is to be like detectives. The, the idea that fish need to be exposed to, well, fish in water need to be exposed to air to encounter the environment is actually the function of the detective. And it's very notice, notable, I think noteworthy, that detectives are often amateur detectives. Have you noticed this in, in detective stories? The best detectives are not essentially in the water of solving crimes. They're the ones slightly removed from it. And you need those people, the outsider essentially, to be able to notice what's actually happening. The detective um, is able to piece together everything that everyone else has. Everyone has the same information. But what the de detective does is he puts that information into a different context. He imagines the context that would make those figures sensible. So he actually creates the context out of which the different little facts can actually make sense that is to function as an anti-environment. You need an anti-environment to be able to see the environment. I think this could potentially become that sort of, this is one example of an anti-environment. People stepping away to actually contemplate how things work, um, what's going on, that, you know, what people are interested in. This is actually the quote that I used at the, right at the start of my book, and it's something that I think in, in a way has become kind of a mantra for me. There is a law written in the darkest of the books of life. Chesterton is referring to the Bible here. And it is this. If you look at a thing 999 times, you are perfectly safe. If you look at it the thousandth time, you are in frightful danger of seeing it for the first time. So it's almost like through, through over-familiarity with something, you actually start to be able to really notice what it is. You can try this for fun. If you say any word repeatedly, at some point it becomes very strange. Have you ever had that experience where you're saying a word and you're like, is that a word? Is that the thing that we use to describe this other thing? That's actually what we need. That's the anti-environment uh, showing up. So what I want to do is I want to point to some figures and the ground that they imply. So certain things that stand out, and, and because this is in some ways an act of defamiliarization, I actually want to point to things that may, many of you won't be familiar with. I always walk around in the world with a sense of distance, kind of like reflective distance. But it is particularly interesting. This is Hamley's in London, where I took my little one who's sitting over there for a day. Because that's really, it's, it's a place you're supposed to get lost in. But I didn't just get lost in it, I started to notice <laughs> what's going on. And, and this was coupled with seeing some of... Um, British advertising to kids, which I think is some of the most manipulative 
horrendous, cruel advertising because it totally gets kids to buy into whatever they're seeing. So I want to talk about uh, three trends in children's toys and what they show up. The first trend is animal hybrids. So you'll notice I've, I've put the names there. I kid you not, these are the real names. And these are all made by different companies. Squeezimals, Enchantimals, Washimals, Rapples, which they could have just called Rappimals, and Hatchimals. So Squeezimals, I want you to notice the design of these toys. They're different creatures, but they've all been sort of designed to fit one shape. So there's one, be so there's one shape going on. And, and so you really have to look very carefully to try and figure out if this actually represents a, a specific animal. Obviously, there are color differences. Enchantimals, this is by Mattel, famous for, well, uh, Barbie. So that is an, as a human-animal hybrid. And I think that's very interesting because the, the relationship between humans and animals in our, in our current global village is very strange. It's been conflated. It's been sort of lumped together. Washimals, these are animals that you can draw on. So you can actually take the, your little colored pens and create patterns. This is a blank slate theory enacted by kids, essentially. And then rapples, it's an animal that actually, it's got a little sort of metal band inside it and you click it onto your arm and then it wraps around your arm. And then hatchimals. Every animal, all these vari va variations, similar to the squeezimals, designed to fit into and hatch from an egg. All animals hatch from eggs. I didn't know that, but apparently that's how it works. <laughs> also, the very interesting, the spherical sort of abstraction, things need to conform to this one particular mm -hmm. shape, and I find that very interesting. There are two symbols I want to highlight just to begin with. The first is the sim symbolic uh, language of homogenization, which is everything starts to become more and more like everything else. All of these brands are trying to distinguish their unique product, and they all just look the same, and they even have the same name, and I find that interesting. The other one, which is less obvious, but I would call this a crisis of distinctions, which is that, and especially creative people are particularly um, prone, I think, to becoming part of the background and actually manifesting it, which is why I'm referring to these things that creative people produce. A crisis of distinctions is where people can't tell the differences between things things start to get conflated and mixed, and there's a little bit of confusion. One of the ways this plays out in the design world is through something called blanding. <laughs> if you look at these fashion brands over here, Yves Saint Laurent, uh, Balenciaga, I don't know how you pronounce it, Burberry, Baluti, Balmain, Balmain, they all redesigned their logos recently, and you'll notice how they went from being distinct to being very much the same. There's another trend which is uh, something you may not be aware of, but I think it's worth paying attention to, which is in the world of music, which is known by some people as the death of melody. So several hits that have uh, struck the scene, the choruses have one note. Uh, poker Face is one, uh, Lady Gaga. But you'll notice it's not just in pop music, you'll notice it also in, in the way that film scores are written. So if you listen to something like Interstellar, um, which is um, what's Hans Zimmer is just an astonishing composer, very capable of writing exceptionally beautiful melodies. But if you listen to Interstellar, it's, it's tonal. It's like a, a 
general mood that he wants to create. The same sort of thing is mimicked in Ad Astra, which is a profoundly beautiful film. And the music is actually profoundly beautiful, but it's not very melodic. Mm -hmm. It's very atmospheric. And I think that's what's starting to happen, is we're developing a kind of atmosphere around things. But you also see the... So that was an example of homogenization, but this is an example of a crisis of distinctions, where, where you'll see various symbols. This is just one, the symbol of the clown. Various symbols crop up that are ambiguous. You don't exactly know what they're supposed to be. The clown in our culture, so the Batman Joker, which is something that comes, comes uh, about again and again, it's, and also, of course, um, it, the revisiting of the Stephen King story. These are not brand new things, but they're, they're emerging at a fairly strong, in a fairly strong way and in a rapid rate in our culture. Uh, this is a, it's funny, the symbol of the funny and the serious. And one weird way this plays out in the real world is that Snopes, which is a kind of fact-checker organization, fact-checked the Babylon Bee, which is a parody satire online journal, magazine type thing. It's satire. <laughs> it's meant to be taken as lightly. And you'll notice that people are more and more uneasy with comedy. There's a lot been said around how comedians need to conform. They need to speak specific ways. They're, Words need to be flattened out. This is so interesting. It's a crisis of distinctions. People do not know how to discern between things. A more interesting trend which is starting to happen, you'll notice this is actually entirely generated by a computer. I'm not sure if you can see. So that's, there's De Niro and Pacino. You'll see his face actually changes as he lifts himself up there. You see that? Okay, so the, the crisis of distinctions is manifesting in interesting ways. People start to feel like reality is something you can play with, a little bit like Google Earth. The Earth is a toy that you can just move around. If, if you have a look at the YouTube channel Control Shift Face, it's a really good one to look at just to see how machine learning is finding ways. To, so the, it's a machine doing all of this. It's not a human being. There's a human being programming it, and there, there are tweaks, and they're improving the certainly the programming, but they're finding ways to actually create alternate realities. Now think of this technology along with another technology where you can actually synthesize someone's voice. There's actually a website called notjordanpeterson.com where you can type in whatever you like and Jordan Peterson, so-called, will say it. Now it's not him, obviously, but it doesn't sound you, you really have to listen carefully to be able to figure out that this is a machine speaking. And I find that quite scary. So you can, it, this is, this is a, a guy essentially in his garage developing this. Now what about having a high-level multi-million dollar corporation who might benefit from a war? So they create the semblance of a particular high-profile person announcing that the declaration of war on a country. That could happen. But this, this is all part of an, a manifestation of this crisis of distinctions. More disturbingly, there is also, apart from blanding, there is branding. So a bunch of vegans, they, um, they branded themselves to make people aware of what, what gets done to animals. Now branding animals is not something that is necessarily as widespread as they are making it out to be. But what is fascinating is also, again, the crisis of distinctions. 
and there are very big complexities here, but I, I, I see this as a manifestation of the crisis of distinctions, that people treat themselves like animals, but weirdly enough, the animals are <coughs> treated as more important. You can actually see this play out in in very old movie, Independence Day. Everyone, I remember being in the cinema where everyone cheered when the dog survived. But I'm, I couldn't believe, I mean, they're just... In droves, people are being obliterated by these very mean aliens. <laughs> and you still have the people on, on top of the roof saying, we come, we're, we're welcome, welcome, like we're every, you're very welcome to destroy us, kind of thing. <laughs> Again, a, a confusion around the harm or good that things can cause. There's uh, additional symbolism to this, this idea of the animal hybrid. It's a lack of a unifying principle, and this is true of anything monstrous. A monster, like a zombie, is a very good example, also something that's come up in culture. It's something that has no unifying principle. It is alive and it is dead. It is human, it is not human. There's, not, there's no way to unify those things. It's just there, the walking dead. Like, how does that work? Nope. It's only conceivable at the level of imagination, not at the level of logic. But I think that's true of these weird hybrids, like an animal-human hybrid. How does that... If you think too hard about it, it becomes a little bit disturbing. <laughs> There's also a centering of margins and then a marginalization of centers that started to happen in culture. So everything that is marginal is becoming absolutely central to the way that people understand things. I think it's an attempt to discern things because the margins have always been ways for people to discern the center. So, but because the center has not been able to hold, to quote a certain poet, people have brought the margin in more and more and more. And what's started to happen is a reversal of the center-margin relationship. You see this also playing out in, in children's TV programs like Animal Mechanicals. Flashbacks to the toy thing. There's also something called Zafari, a zebra. No, sorry, I get it wrong. An elephant is born with zebra stripes. Again, there's no unifying principle here. It's bizarre. Uh, you have a lion with parrot feathers. You have a parrot monkey. You have a baboon that looks like a penguin. You have an aardvark that has, you can't see that, but that is a ladybird um, shell. That is some weird sort of jaboa... Bush baby com combination, a leopard, what is that thing? Koala? It's so difficult to actually distinguish what's going on here, but th that's a leopard ko koala, as you would have expected. And the idea, I mean, you could argue that this is quite a, a, a useful, potentially useful tool to get kids to think about how some people might feel a bit different. The trouble is, and you can also see this in kids' books. Kids are the, are the first targets, I think, for, for the cultural manifestations that we have. And I, obviously, as a parent, this is a problem um, for me or something worrying. But in kids' books, every second book that you pick up, you can check out at any bookstore, is all about how to accept people who are different. To the point where everyone is so different that everyone is utterly the same. The second trend, and I apologize for the fact that I'm going to be talking about this, is unicorn excrement. This is actually the Hegelian synthesis of two other trends. The one is animals mimicking defecation, which is just potty humor for kids, which is as old as the, the universe, basically. The other one is unicorns, which is a very pervasive symbol, and then this is the result. Unicorn excrement. 
So this is called Tutti. It's made by the company Play-Doh. And Tutti, you put the Play-Doh in and Tutti poops rainbows. And because that's what unicorns do. And it actually makes, I kid you not, it, the idea is to make ice cream. <laughs> yeah, it's, it is as funny as it looks. Um, when you pull the hair, um, the eyes squint and then the stuff comes out. There's quite a lot of symbolism going on here. And I do think this is coupled with a sort of homogenization trend, which is the disappearance of discernment. You're supposed to be able to discern between what is the, something that is producing something and waste. You should be able to discern between that and waste. And now there is no waste. It doesn't waste anything. It, in fact, you should eat it. I mean, that could be a symbol of, of consumerism itself, which is interesting. So it's the normalization of a waste product. It's also very... Um, definitely, the unicorn itself is a symbol of the LGBT plus designation, which is one of the most disconnected groups you could possibly imagine. But it's, it symbolizes this sort of acceptance of difference. Because it's also, a unicorn is a benign monster. It's, a, it's something that also doesn't have a unifying principle, like a zombie. Why would it have a horn growing out of its head? But it feels benign because it is mostly a horse. So that's so it's become kind of a symbol of woke totemism. It's just, it's the uncritiquable thing. Uh, a totem in in Durkheim's thinking is is this idea of something that is sacred, and you cannot it you cannot touch it. You cannot profane it. It's a, a holy thing. So that's kind of what unicorns have become symbolic of. But I think it's not just it's not just one particular group. I think it's become symbolic of a a, a global tribal culture. I'll come back to the fact that the rainbow is not what it seems. <laughs> so what's happened is we've moved really from a, a de-tribalized global village. It wasn't even a global village. It was just a global, I guess you could call it a, a globe. It was just that. Into re-tribalization. And it's definitely connected with the shift from print culture into, into digital culture, and certainly into electronic uh, media culture. So detribalization de is what happens with print culture. You sit on your own with a book and you are alone. No one's going to the book is not going to suddenly pop up with a message and say, update. <laughs> you have a new tweet. Oh, okay. I'll go back and find my new tweet. So there's a definite visual bias with reading. So it's very uh, directed. There's a point of view that's happening there. It encourages rationality. It encourages abstract reasoning. It is what created the individual in the modern era. And there are pros and cons to all of these things. And in fact, the, reading, the word reading comes from the old English word radon, or readon, I guess, which means to guess. When you are reading, you have to learn how to make rapid decisions. That's what, what is actually going on. So you will actually see in the world today, managers are people who read, because they, their mode of thinking is decisive. People who do not read cannot be managers, because they can't make rapid decisions. They can't see how... Because every word has, like, of the 500 words that are most used in English, each of those has 25 different definitions. So we're used to this idea um, of, of making decisions if we read. 
But what's move, moved is we've moved into the retribalization of electronic culture. And that's acoustic space, not visual space. Acoustic space is sound goes everywhere. And you can hear sound around corners. It's sort of coming at you from every angle. Whereas visual space is linear. You can't see around corners. So that's one of the major shifts that's ha happening. And I think some of you will feel this. You always will have the sense that everything is coming at you from every angle. You will feel bombarded if you're aware of it. Sometimes you are bombarded and you only become aware of it later. It also encourages this retribalized culture, encourages conformity and, and uniformity. And this is a piece of ancient wisdom from the Psalms, Psalm 115, where it says, Their idols are of silver, silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak, eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear, noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel, feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. And so do all who trust in it. And the basic idea of this wisdom is that if you pay attention to something long enough, it will change you. What, what You are what you behold, is the essential kind of wisdom of this. Which brings me to Edward Snowden and Barbara Streisand, as you, I'm sure, were expecting. <laughs> so Edward Snowden, a couple weeks back, um, released a book called Permanent Record. And you know him from sort of exposing the U.S. government spying on everyone, which we all knew, but then we discovered that we knew what we knew, mm -hmm. which is quite an amazing experience. Anyway, so Snowden released the book, and immediately the U.S. government sued him. A journalist quickly piped up, that's a terrible idea. If you want to shut him down, it's just going to make the book more popular, which is exactly what happened. On the next, very next day, Edward Snowden's book, trended at number one on Amazon. <laughs> and similar thing happened, it's called the Streisand effect. Barbara Streisand tried to keep quiet the fact that she had a big fancy house somewhere, and she tr so tried to keep the information at bay from the internet. It exploded. No one cared until she said, you can't see it. And that's a general good principle to understand with people, is that the minute you say no to them, they're going to go, <coughs> No to what? I want to be in control, and then they'll actually look. But I think the principle here is very interesting, that you do one thing with a very specific intention, the opposite will happen. And it's not even just about intention, it's about the way the world works. Things turn into their opposites. This is actually a, an idea that Heraclitus referred to as an enantiodromia. Things turn into their opposites. It's also from the wisdom of the, of the Tao Te Ching. Um, which I've, this is my own rewording, so um, to keep it interesting. Uh, whatever attempts to gain its place by power and self-assertive manipulation will quickly lose its place. So power, control, we need to make things happen. Powerlessness emerges. Very strange thing, but if you actually pay attention to what's going on in the world, you'll notice, huh, this is so interesting. The minute you try and over-assert, it starts to lose its power. Uh, another idea also in verse 9, or the, the ninth poem, I guess. Overinflate a balloon and it'll soon burst. Sharpen a knife too much and it'll soon end up being blunted. This is also the wisdom of the story of the Tower of Babel in the book of Genesis. Basically, one good exaggeration leads to another. 
Everyone gathers together to make a name for themselves to build the biggest tower using a technology, very interestingly, bricks, very new technology. Build this tower, extend themselves too far, and God's judgment, which is a symbol in the scriptures of the natural consequence of human actions, is to split everyone up. And that's exactly what, this is the internet, predicted by the book of Genesis. It's fantastic, everyone is one, look at how unified we are, collapse. And that's, that's the overextension of every medium. Which brings me to rainbows, the third trend in children's toys. Now this, this one is basically evident in the toys I've already showed you, but, but if, you look, if you walk around a kid's toy store, color, it's just, it is rainbows. It's just amazing how many colors there are. Of course, it refers to the Noah's story, the idea that there is the promise of order after chaos. It's also the idea of unity and difference. This was an idea that Desmond Tutu uh, used for the new South Africa right at the start of the, I guess, at the start of our real debate about what's going on. But it's also become a symbol of what I'm going to call identity metaphysics. The mistake is to think that identity politics, which is very trendy right now, is, is the result of itself. It is the result of a particular conception of identity, which is identity metaphysics. And that conception of identity is only possible in an age of electronic media. To put it very bluntly, Twitter created identity politics. Because at the minute you homogenize people, they need to feel their edges. Because they've now, all of their edges have been taken away, so they need to start bumping up against people. The most easily accessible thing is themselves, so they start to bump that up against other people. And through that they get, get some sense of self-definition, then they overstate that self-definition and it perpetuates. And this is, of course, evident across the political spectrum. It's not, it's not something that's unique to just the minority groups, say. Um, so there's identity metaphysics. I'll talk about metaphysics later. It's important to see the rainbow as a wall. It's the result of unicorn excrement. <laughs> that the natural result of overly unifying things and to create the sense that everything is peaceful and everything is wonderful and good is actually the thing that s makes a claim. And it's very interesting how absolutely hierarchical a, a rainbow is. There are colors at the top, there are colors at the bottom. It's a very strange symbol to use for a political movement that, that wants to try and, in a way, do away with hierarchy. But I think what's very interesting is that it has manifested hierarchy worse than the hierarchy itself. It's more defined. So I would say that the rainbow is an assertion of figure as a manifestation of ground. What this all leads to, I think, is this idea that outside is the new inside. When you obliterate the partitions within everyone's minds, which is what electronic media do, you develop partitions through print media, through reflective reasoning. And as soon as you obliterate those partitions, people feel the very strong need to manifest partitions in the world itself. We have to put what should have been inside, outside. We have to externalize all forms of rationality. So you see this in very interesting ways, the revenge of analog, final. So you walk into Musica, and vinyl is just growing and growing. It's amazing. Why? I mean, this didn't even happen so much when CDs were like first introduced into the market. But the minute you have streaming, then people start to feel like, wait, music is coming at me from every angle. I can just access everything. 
there's no sense of ownership. It doesn't feel like, again, it doesn't feel like it has edges. So people look to a very concrete thing, which you have to look after. Vinyl is not something you can just throw around and bash around. It's very strong in some respects, but it'll wreck the music. Although, even if it does, there's some sense of the medium, which I think people need, is that sense of, like, if there's a scratch, you can actually hear it. Amazing. There's also a revisiting of, of existentialism and pragmatism in our culture. I would also say stoicism, especially young men. There's a whole movement to revisit stoicism, which is a, an entire worldview around boundaries. There's also, good and bad, I'm not sure, but this is what's happening, excessive bureaucracy and the multiplying of laws. I think just yesterday, President Ramaphosa signed in six new laws. It's like, where are they getting these from? I mean, there are good reasons for some of those, but it's just interesting that there's just this multiplying of laws. The university policies that I have to look at every week, or approximately, there are new ones so frequently, it's, it's kind of insane. Delineating every part of life. But this manifestation of excessive boundaries is the natural result of living in a world that doesn't have any. One more bizarre example of this is that slow lanes have just been introduced in the UK for people walking while reading their phones. <laughs> There's also going to be a natural, natural ideological diversification and polarization. We've seen that. Now polarization, people have always believed different things. It's fine, but the, the, the thing that's happened now is people are starting to actually confront people who really think different things from them. And those people are in their own homes. Like, well, that, that's the whole point of family, is to be in a space where you can actually learn from different perspectives. But in a world that obliterates perspectives, that's not a comfortable thing. I also think that outrage is a performance commodity. <laughs> it is so lucrative, and I'm, I mean this socially. If, there, if you want to prove yourself to people and, and show how virtuous you are, just be outraged. Fantastic. You don't have to do anything significant. You don't have to be anyone significant. Just be angry. There's a, a guy who, uh, Pan, uh, Pankaj Mishra, who wrote a book called The Age of Anger to define the age we're in. It's a, it's a terrible book, but it's, he gets at something right, which is that this is the kind of age of outrage. This is a contentious thing to say, but I'm going to say it. 9-11 would never ha have happened without the internet. You can ask me later if you want why I think that. Some dimensions of a response. Now, obviously, now if you're a big, you become aware of all of this, there's the big question, of what do you do with all of this? This is um, great. So these things are happening. What, what's my role? I do think that if we want to have a response, not just a reaction, and response is where we get the word responsibility, the ability to respond, we need some sort of contemplative practice, something that... Um, enhances our ability to reflect, not just reflect critically, critique itself has limits because critique essentially produces its own assumptions. But there needs to be a way to reflect on what is really real, especially, and there are various ways to do this, to prize understanding over judgment. The, the trouble with having a, an obsession with figures and not the ground is that we do prioritize judgment over understanding. You can even see this in the way social media platforms are constructed. You like the image, or ignore it, or you comment. 
and then certain other ones that's like that's Instagram on YouTube you like it or you thumbs down it and then positive comment negative comment it's very interesting that these platforms actually encourage very binary thinking isn't it supposed to be very open why is it so binary anyway that that's the nature of the platform and to overcome this kind of binary thinking I think that we need to recover the reality or the fact that perception is not reality perception is analogy what you think is analogous to what you what is actually there it's not it's not the same thing and when we have a contemplative reflective awareness of perception as analogy we can actually start to recognize what I would call a double negative of analogy in analogy when we're comparing one thing to another you're essentially saying not this and not that not book burning not wall building but by saying no to both it's not an absolute negative it's a kind of determinate negation where you say now I can accept both as part of the paradigm that's a complex thought but it's the idea that that negation is not only negation it is also affirmation if you deny yourself you find your life all the all good theology let's put it this way um, has a measure of of the of the negative we recognize that our thoughts about God are not the same as God there's a there's a distance between between our our conceptions and the reality so there's negation not God and not me because there's a negative there too I, I deny myself weirdly enough that becomes the most powerful affirmation but it's not an egotistical one it accepts that what is there is what is there and then I would say part of this is actually part of a, a more metaphysical um, perception which is metaphysics deals with being as being which is the study of what is there what is real I would say that um, Metaphysics is one component of ontology. Ontology studies the ultimately real. And that is a good place to have a, a foundation. What is really real? How do I conform to that reality? How do I work with what is real? Not identity metaphysics. This is one place where I will make a judgment, but it's after a good deal of thought. Identity metaphysics looks at beings as absolute. Not being, the totality of reality. It looks at very small a truncated kind of collapsed view of reality and says this is ultimate my identity is the ultimate thing it is easy to believe that in the world of electronic media but it's still untrue most children's toys employ analogy I would actually say all cognition employs analogy and we use it better or worse than in different ways but children's toys are analogies the thing is not itself it is something else and my relationship with the thing is, is also always in negotiation and dialogue. That's kind of how kids play with toys. There's this, the realm of imagination, which I think is, is, we cannot be ethical without imagination. You have to be able to imagine someone else's perspective and the conditions of the environment to be able to actually act in a healthy way. Another way to respond is to really try and train our perceptions to, to be aware of figure and ground. What's, what's showing up and what is receding? What, what are we aware of and what is actually hiding? And I think a, a really good way of looking at this is from Matthew 5, verse 14 to 16, where Jesus talks about not putting your light under a basket. 
Because that's what happens. The basket will catch fire. That's actually the meaning of it is, well, what happens when the light goes under a basket? It's not that it gets hidden, as a lot of people say. It's that it absolutely gets disproportionately out of hand. The point is to be uh, to act in proportion with the light that you've been given. I think that is kind of a way to think about it, that, that we need to, to really live in accordance with who we are and, how, and what is real, rather than have this absolutely disproportionate relationship with things. The trouble is that because we become the content of social media especially, or me, we are always the content of every medium we use, but because we're the content of this electronic media sphere, everything is out of proportion. The self is horrendously out of proportion. Because it's not just me sending a tweet, it's me sending a tweet and 500 other people seeing it. It's, it's this little echo, and it's one of the reasons we can't deal with trauma very well, when terrible things happen in, as they have in our country recently. When these things happen, we're not just coping with the news, we're coping with the disproportionate way it is relayed to us. We're coping with everyone's response to the responses of everyone else responding to the thing. So it gets blown out of proportion. That's, that's why we need to think about that. I, I coined a word, I think it was last week. I thought this, this is kind of a cool idea. Maybe I should take this on as, as a title for what I, what I do. When people ask me, what do you do? I will say, I'm a eucatastrophologist. <laughs> <laughs> because I think it's also important to... So eucatastrophe is an, actually a word coined by J.R.R. Tolkien. Tolkien's idea there is that there is a eucatastrophe at the end of myths, and myths meaning stories that are truer than what you see. At the end, there's always a, a surprising turn towards the good, towards the positive. Not just, it's not just optimism, it's towards the genuinely good. And so eucatastrophology is, is speaking about the logos of the eucatastrophe, speaking and, and understanding and seeking to study how things might turn towards the good. Well, here's how I see the book burning and the wall building turning towards the good. Again, the logic of analogy applies here. I think that the turning towards the good of the book burning, which results in narcissists, narcissists, um, of course, obsessed with himself. Narcissists' crime, as I show in this image, was to not recognize that the medium itself was an extension of himself. He just failed to see that. But I think one of the, the tools of contemplation again here is that narcissists may actually have a chance of seeing that he is the image of God. In other words, he is not his own end point. There is a point beyond himself, higher than all of reality, that is the point. And I do think that, weirdly enough, in, in these very various trends in our time, there has been a crisis of meaning that's definitely emerged, but also a, a deeper search for it. And I think that's part of what's already happening. It's not, it's not something accidental. People get, in, get fed up with themselves pretty quickly. And they get fed up with the disconnection between the life they're living and the imaginary one they're putting up on Instagram or whatever. They get sick of it, eventually, because it overheats, essentially. The other one is Prometheus. This is the wall building, so which is like seizing control, putting down strong boundaries. So Prometheus creates a very specific boundary between himself and the gods when he steals fire from them. The solution to this is to start recognizing what we have. 
which is so gratitude I think is a better boundary builder than anger which is what most people are resorting to in our age I think if you have gratitude you start to notice what things really are and I do think that this return to material culture in a sense like the vinyl thing or the return to paper and that kind of stuff that is you'll notice the prediction was that books are going to be eradicated and now they're freely available in a way that has never happened before there is a way to actually be grateful for what things are and their place in the world and our relationship with them again some sort of reflection is there and it stops being a demand that things serve us or that things change because my cause is the one that needs to be fought evangelicalism is not working very well in our age nor is activism the internet won't let it these things are not working what will work is contemplation that's actually going to genuinely create change those are my thoughts and I would love to hear your thoughts now that I've bombarded you with thoughts good maybe I overheated the last one sorry there's a concept I think that's going around that says enough. I am enough, it is enough, my life is enough, Oh, that's God very is true. Um, and I think it's almost like we want to embrace it. It's all enough. We don't need more, we don't need more. I think the, where the test of that is going to be where people actually live it. Because it's, people say it, but then they have to go and tweet it as well, or they have to go and announce it on Facebook. Uh, I'm enough, but I want you to like what I've said. It's very important I get feedback. Yeah, thinking about um, that, uh, connecting it to more minimalist living. Um, but then minimalist living can then, that's the trick, because that can then also become overheated. Um, yes. Which becomes its own thing again. Like the moment that there isn't kind of a tension between what you're doing and thinking about what you're doing, things kind of tend to go down or yeah. That's that's it's absolutely the of you know light under basket. I find it so interesting that the, the minimalist thing um, is also like a, an anxiety management tool. Yeah. But it's very much a wall. And I do see some beauty in it. I think it can be very profound. But exactly as you say, I think it can very quickly reverse on itself where people feel like, where they forget that we are still dependent on the world. It's not a terrible thing to recognize that we are dependent on the things we own. We are dependent on people. That's how we're built. So it's not a terrible thing to be dependent. It's just a terrible... Th so the minimalist thing, I think the overheating of it is that complete depend independence so very good point and also a trend that fits with I think what's going on one thing I didn't mention but I think it's kind of pertinent is the absolute commitment to catastrophization have you noticed mm -hmm. that like people are, are just, it's, it can't just be bad it's got to be absolutely terrible the world is 12 years people the world will end according to some opinions. Yeah. I'm always a we're the worst in the world of this and yeah. that and the other. And you want to say, what stats are you basing that on? Yeah. Because we're always the worst. And it's, yeah, it's, it's that. <laughs> so if you look at how that plays out, because every medium is an extension of ourselves, mm -hmm. so you've got social media which mm -hmm. say, well, my opinion is the thing that englobes the world, mm -hmm. which is part of this identity metaphysics um, Thing, which is 
kind of, it's not that things, there are not bad things happening. It's just like really try and keep them in proportion to what they really are. And that's very difficult to do when you're dealing with this catastrophization. I actually think I have a thing against hashtags as well. Because it's, it's that exact thing. They're, they're always generalizations. That's quite a nice generalization. <laughs> I, I try to figure out why my hashtags never work, because I've hashtagged things, but I always string a sentence together. I'm like, it's too specific, that's the problem. But anyway, yes, exactly. Grant. I spent last week down in Mitchell's play, and I mean, everybody, you say you're in Mitchell's play, and they say, see any gang murders or, you know, did you, did you see any of the army and things like that? And, and, and friends of mine were in Kailicha, I mean, we were scattered throughout the whole of Cape Town last week. And, and I think that's the other thing is that social media has taken us to a point where bad news is always proposed over good news. Yeah. So anything that happens good, like we had a, a meeting of 4,000 people last week of under 35-year-olds in the middle of Cape Town from across the world, diversity. Um, and that didn't even make any of the newspapers or any of the social media uh, wow. or anything else like that because that's too good. Whereas if it's something bad, we will, re, we will rehash it. And, 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 and also in a sense, we will go to a story that is maybe five years old and when something similar happens, we'll, we'll pop that story back. We'll relive the story that died five years ago. So, okay, so here's an, a way of thinking of news. News is always the anti-environment. It's always the thing that should make you consider your environment. And previously it was that. What is a journalist? Sorry if there are journalists in the room for my insult that I'm about to deliver, but a journalist is someone who digs through the trash of a house. The house is running as it does with complexities and difficulties, but mostly it's good and peaceful, everything's fine. But everyone has waste, so they throw it away. So what the journalist does, and okay, this is a metaphor obviously, but the journalist digs through the waste and then they tell the world, look at how this house is full of trash. Everyone's got trash in their houses. The world is burning. Like, yeah, well, the trouble is that, that yes, that's true. It's true that there are there is trash that is, emerges from every house. But don't make it absolute. The house is fine. You can also tell when people, when things are getting better, when people complain more. It's, what, it's what's called St. Georgian Retirement Syndrome. St. George has beaten the dragon and now he needs something to do. So it's like, I need to find more dragons. They're all dead, but you have to find more dragons. This has started to happen in a lot of activism. We've got laws supporting equality. We've got, like, fairness. We've got, mostly in this country, peaceable relations between people. Things are, as with any family, there are tensions here and there, but things are good. And what the activist does is tell you that things are the worst. It's like, well, no, they're not. Stop paying attention only to the trash and start looking at what's going on in the house. The trouble with social media, it makes all of us publishers. We're all publishing news. It makes the news people feel like they're a bit redundant, so they have to one-up everyone. So it becomes a competitive environment of escalating catastrophe. But it's not true. What I talk, truth, truth is always proportional. There's something beautiful about truth. Any last thoughts?
there are a few things, Tris. Um, I would like to know, like, what is your, what do you think is your prediction on where we're headed? So, I mean, this is all like very real questions that yeah. people are starting to ask questions, but not enough. Because, I mean, the general population is just going to ride the wave. Yeah, so one of the things that I think is going to happen, and you can test the, the truth of this claim in, in terms of how it plays out, but I think things will calm down. I think that th things are, when things are dying, there tends to be a scream first. So it, or you could also argue when things are dead, then there is a scream. So when things have been solved or resolved, then people start like really getting louder and louder and louder. Okay. I've seen this in several of the movements that are going on, and I do think, so what's also starting to happen in youth cultures, like the younger people, they are not as addicted to their phones as Generation X, you know, sort mm -hmm. of my, my generation. Are. They're not as obsessed with like being on social media. Social media adoption is dipping now. So the younger generation, they've grown up with this medium, they're fairly used to it. So it, it is their normal environment. When print came in, militarism was invented. When radio came in, Hitler arrived. So radio created Nazism in some sense. The same thing is we've, we've had like this burst of social media, which is a very new thing. And people are already starting to de develop a kind of immunity to it. So this is the placebo, not the placebo, the... It's the homeopathic effect of media is that people first need to develop a kind of resistance to it and then it'll calm down. So I do think that we're in a state of chaos globally. That's obvious. It was obvious when we went to London, there were three protests there. Saw it on the bus, like the one blocked all the, the streets in London. I thought, well, this is no different to South Africa, except people are complaining about stupid things there. Um, here we complain about, I think, generally things that are genuinely worrying except that they are still blown out of proportion. So when people start to develop an immunity, things will start to settle, and I think people will start to naturally find some kind of equilibrium for a time until the next new medium, which I'm not sure what that's going to be. We can maybe have a discussion afterwards. I think there's, yeah, there's a lot, and I, I know that I haven't covered... Well, I try to cover the whole globe, but that's not really possible, is it? Okay, thank you.